Welcome to Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. Carolyn, how does it feel to be doing a brand new podcast? It feels very exciting, Raymond. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's terrific. And, and so you're here working at the Nikkei National Museum on some special program. Uh, yes, I am here on a 12-month internship with the BC Arts Council Early Career Development Grant. So I'm going to be learning about all the different workings of the museum here for the next year. That's awesome. And so today we're going to be talking about the franchise. And that's not like getting a Subway franchise or a McDonald's <laughs> franchise, but about the vote. And it seemed like uh, this year the election was an important thing. And uh, you've been involved in, in trying to recruit or encourage young people to be voting, is that right? Um, I think that we saw a lot of that with this election, and I certainly saw it among my peers that those of us who were already voting and were already politically minded were really pushing other youths to vote because youth voter turnout is always so notoriously low. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's numbers for youth turnout, but the general election turnout was the highest since the early 90s, so mm -hmm. that was pretty great. It was 60, 69.1%. Right. And it hasn't been that high since 1993. Mm -hmm. So that, that was an interesting outcome. And at the same time, on a negative side, it seems like racial and uh, divisive issues are, are becoming an issue uh, sometimes in, in political rhetoric. And you're hearing it in the United mm -hmm. States right now with oh Trump. And, and some of it came up in, in Canada. So uh, sadly, uh, it's, it's still relevant that we talk about this uh, of franchise with respect to Japanese Canadians. Right. And one thing we did um, see is there were different groups trying to get different groups out to vote. For example, there are things like the Dogwood Initiative in BC, trying to get people to vote for environmental initiatives. Um, I think there were some groups trying to get Muslims out to vote, Muslim Canadians, and they reported about 80% hmm. of Muslim voters turned out to vote, so higher than the national average. And it's not uh, a mystery to see why they would think that what they had to say was important in this election. But when Japanese Canadians were trying to fight for their rights, they didn't have the vote mm -hmm. back in 42 and earlier. So it's a different world now, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of, of the world way back then, uh, the first Japanese to come to Canada, of course, was Manzo Nagano back in 1877. And uh, back then, there were a lot of restrictions on different groups who were not allowed to vote. Among them, uh, the Chinese and First Nations people were not. So at first, there weren't that many Japanese who were here, and mostly they were men uh, working in seasonal occupations a lot of times, and so maybe they didn't think about the vote so much. But specifically in uh, 1885, they were restricted from voting even if they were naturalized and uh, I know that at least the fishermen had to become naturalized Canadians in order to get a license right. so that that had an impact and the complicated thing is that the rules for voting differed between provinces and uh, the country as a whole so federal elections and provincial elections sometimes had different rules and it was uh, BC that had made this restriction. They weren't the only ones that restricted based on race, but it seemed like because they had the most immigrants from Asia, this, this had the impact. And from the Japanese Canadian standpoint, uh, they were the ones who were being targeted. 
Right, and that's why the Japanese Canadians weren't barred from voting as early as Chinese Canadians were, because there just weren't as many of them. Mm-hmm. They weren't around, that's right. right. And then once there were, then they decided to bar them from the vote. Uh, now, it's interesting to think about British Columbia, the fact that they would call it British Columbia as sort of an indication yeah. of, of where their, their heads were at and, and what their priorities were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting about the idea of these restrictions because they had other implications. So once they were not allowed to be on the provincial voters list, it meant that they were restricted from occupations, which included being on a school board or civil service or pharmacists. Yes. And my dad's a pharmacist now, so I always think about that when I when I hear that list, which is, you know, doctor, lawyer, pharmacist. My dad's actually the person who signs the pharmacy licenses in BC right now. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool to come from not being allowed in the profession to having your name on all the licenses in less than 100 years. Mm-hmm. So that was the situation around what? late 1800s into the early 20th century. Yeah, so there was even the case in 1898 Mm -hmm. where the Japanese were allowed to vote federally but not provincially. Oh, really? And so it was interesting because there was this kind of back and forth between the federal governments and the provincial governments uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of control for for that aspect. Mm -hmm. And also between federal governments, between Laurier and McDonald, there was mm-hmm. there were conflicts, and they were trying to figure out, of course, which was going to work in their favor, right. uh, one way or another. So it's really about about the balance of power between federal and provincial governments, and conflicting, also trying to use it for their own ends, not really thinking about it from a moral standpoint. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in 1900, Tomokichi Homa, who was a fisherman and an actualized Canadian. He tried to get his name added to the voters list because he was a Canadian citizen and the person in charge of the person just who was at the voters office at the time refused. So he launched a court case to challenge that because he was a Canadian citizen and that means federally as a British subject, which was at the time what you need to be, he had the right to vote technically, but he had to be on the provincial voters list again, in order to get the federal vote, because that's where they got their information from. Assuming it would all be consistent, but there was a contradiction here, because BC had the law against Japanese um, naturalized Canadians of Japanese descent mm-hmm. from voting, which is in this case, well, at this time it was people who had immigrated from Japan and naturalized often to get fishing licenses, mm-hmm. but also who wanted to participate in the democracy like Tomokichi Homa. Mm-hmm. My aunt is actually one of Tomikichi Homa's granddaughters, mm-hmm. so I, I called her to ask her about that, um, just, you know, to see if she had any stories. She never met him, Yeah. Um, but she talked about how he was um, quite the scholar, mm-hmm. and actually his original reason for leaving Japan was to attend Oxford University oh, in England. Wow. But I guess he just landed in New Westminster and decided he, like, he had a lot of stuff to do here. Huh. Because he did tons of things. Because I, I understand that he had studied at Waseda. He had studied law or something at Waseda. Um, uh, I don't know that, but probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was well educated. He came from a samurai family. Mm. So, um, and we actually got at the museum, we've gotten a donation from the Homa family recently that we're working on scanning. And uh, among those is one of his diaries from the 30s. And also some of his books, including a book on Japanese imperial law. Mm. So he did a lot of reading. He was very interested in that. So mm-hmm. I think that 
he was someone who thought, well, here's a principle and here's the right that I'm entitled to. Yes. And he certainly just wasn't some guy. He no. was He was involved. I know that he was yeah. the, the president of the fishing organization when they first started making yes. the, the fishermen's hospital. Yes. And uh, so it seems like he was part of a larger movement re related to this. Yes, and he was also instrumental in unionizing the Japanese fishermen. So he did a lot of things in his life, but one of the things that he's known for is fighting for the franchise. And that went all the way to the Privy Council in England because he he won the case, actually. He was told, yes, you do have the right to vote. And then it went to the Provincial Supreme Court, it went to the Federal Supreme Court, and they also said, yes, Tomeki Chihoma is a naturalized British subject. He has the right to vote. And the BC government just wouldn't take that, so mm -hmm. they took it all the way to the the head of the the head of the colony back in England. In England, um, in London, the Privy Council said it was okay to make that distinction based on race, and that as a citizen you have the obligations, but not necessarily the privileges. And nowadays, people say that's probably not a fair way to apply that law, but that's the way they chose to apply it in London in, I think, 1902. And that was that for a while. Mm -hmm. And he unfortunately passed away before the franchise was gone for Japanese Canadians. Right, which would still take some time. Uh, the next major incident related to this aspect of um, getting the franchise and other groups, including women, were obviously uh, trying to get involved in, in the elections, and, and World War I played a big part of that, uh, both for women and for other groups. And So among them were Issei men who tried to enlist in the Canadian Army. A lot of them were from Japan, and some of them had apparently been in the, the Japanese Army, and at that time, Japan was considered an ally of Britain. Yes. So, so they were seeing this potential, at least some of them were seeing this as, as fighting for Japan, helping out Britain, who was an ally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that was interesting because it, it would have had the implication. There were other laws that said that if you were uh, in the army, then you'd be allowed to vote, which is a reason why the B.C. government didn't allow them to mm -hmm. sign up in B.C. So they ended up there were about over 200 of them who decided to enlist and they went to Alberta uh, to uh, to do this and, and they were able to get in. Initially they uh, the, the government wanted them to have their own group but there weren't enough of them to be able to set that up. Right. Uh, and that's actually an anniversary that's coming up next year in 2016 and the museum's going to have an exhibit on Japanese Canadian participation in World War One because they formed their own training group even mm -hmm. and pay to, to train themselves with with help from people who were associated with the army but the community funded this group of um, 100 200 odd men of Jap Japanese Japanese Canadians um, still mostly ECA at this point I think mm -hmm. who wanted to serve in the army and then they were turned down ultimately by the government and went to Alberta to enlist each of them as individuals Mm-hmm. So another uh, angle of that tied in with the vote and, and how governments sort of manipulated things is in 1917 that the federal government had this Military Voters Act uh, so that some people, other groups who, who previously didn't have it, if they were in the army then they would be allowed to vote. So some of these vets were allowed to vote in a federal election in, in 1917. Right. And that included 
women who were serving overseas as nurses, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And also, I think, some of the family members of Oh, I'm uh, not sure soldiers? about that. Uh -huh. I think so. I remember that from my high school social studies. That, that, oh. was, that, was, that was another completely political move by Borden to try and get conscription through, was to get everyone associated with the military who had family in the military to vote mm -hmm. because they would all want conscription. Right, right. That, yeah, that's an interesting way. It's sort of an indication of, of how... Um, sampling error and statistics plays out <laughs> that that if if you have a group you're going to get a certain kind of outcome if it's not a randomized sample De deliberate sampling yeah errors, that's right deliberate yeah yes, that's right um, and then in um, 1920 there was the Dominion Elections Act but they they still persisted in this uh, in allowing BC to discriminate by race the right. Chinese so Japanese so at this point there are many Japanese Canadian veterans but they don't have the right to vote mm hmm uh, and so, yeah, so about 50, over 50 of them were killed in action. Mm -hmm. And uh, of the, those who survived, or, or at least out of the 200 or so who went to war, uh, 11 of them received uh, military medals for bravery. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a pretty significant showing on their part. This issue of the vote for, at least for veterans, uh, continued, and the premier... John Oliver was going to give the right to vote to JC veterans, but there were too much outrage at the time, and he withdrew that mm. plan. Uh, that year, they, the uh, Japanese Canadian community, though, did erect the cenotaph in in uh, Stanley Park, Park. Yes. right, which is where we have the Remembrance Day ceremony every year mm -hmm. honor those for for them. And when I go to the aquarium with my daughter, we walk by there. Yeah. I don't have any actual relatives on there, but there's a Nakamura and she gets a kick right. out of being able to find <laughs> a name that's on there. It's right, yeah, I don't think I have any relatives um, on the Cenotaph either, but I don't know if there might be an Akagawa. Mm. It's probably not a relative though. <laughs> uh, so connected to this, in 1931, there was Masumi Mitsui, who is the head of a newly formed Canadian Legion branch number nine. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, other Japanese Canadian vets had started in 1926, and they went as a lobby to Victoria to try and get the BC legislature to, to right. allow the vote for mm -hmm. people, all people of Japanese ancestry. So legislation ended up allowing just the the vets to have the vote then. So 1931 mm -hmm. was when they got it. Right. And, and it wasn't passed down to their families either. No, just just the right. individuals who, who had that. So on the one hand, this was historic because it, they were the first Asian Canadians to win any voting rights. Right. But really they were disappointed yeah. since that wasn't what they wanted. I think it was quite crushing for them. Uh, nonetheless, this what a is... victory. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting that it's been acknowledged as a national historic event. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to interpret it that way. Um, At the same time, it took them 12 years, or you know, 12 or 13 years after the end of the war to get this, and they fought so hard, and it only passed by one vote. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, it's the smallest kind yes, of victory yes, you could yes, that's imagine. Right. Like, anything less, it would have been a loss. Yes, that's right. And then the next movement on it seems to have been in the 30s, and it's related to the founding of the CCF, which is now the NDP. Um, they declared in their Regina Manifesto in 1933, which was their sort of founding document, that all Canadians, regardless of race, should have the right to vote. 
that was one of their founding principles as a party, and they really tried to push the issue. In 1936, the MP for Vancouver East, who is a CCF member, just like today, Vancouver East hmm. is an NDP writing, um, Angus McInnes made a motion in Parliament and asked the members of Parliament, do you support Asian disenfranchisement? So basically he tried to force the issue, say either grant these naturalized Canadians or Canadians of Asian descent the right to vote, or explicitly say that they should not, whereas at the time they were just kind of going along with how it had been and not really saying either way. But he wanted to force the issue. And that led to the creation of a special committee, so they kind of deferred the question mm -hmm. and said, this special committee is going to investigate, we don't want to vote on this, because they didn't want to, they didn't want to have to come down and make that um, declaration. And the Japanese Canadian Citizens League had been formed, meanwhile, in Vancouver, and they sent a delegation to Ottawa to make their case and say, you know, this is our chance, please hear us out, we should have the vote. They chose four really upstanding members of the community, and I think you did a podcast mm -hmm. earlier on with Scott about uh, Hideko Hiroshimizu, as well as, um, in particular, she was one of them, and there mm -hmm. were three others. Minoru Kobayashi, um, Chutaro Edward Banno, and Ichie Hayakawa, and they all had very respectable professions. Uh, Hidehiro was a teacher, and Minoru Kobayashi was a life insurance agent, Bano was a dentist, and Hayakao was actually a professor, I think, of English literature. So they were all Nisei, Canadian-born Japanese, who did not have the right to vote, and they were all very fluent and very eloquent and articulate. Their argument was basically that the Nisei, them, their Canadian-born generation, were assimilated Canadians, they're just like any other Canadians of any ethnic origin, and they should have the right to vote because they've been raised with this principle of democracy and what was still then considered very British sense of fair play in ties with ties to the, the British motherland of mm -hmm. the colony of mm -hmm. Canada. Which, I don't know, that's kind of unfair to throw Tomokichi Homa under the bus. He had every right to vote too. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that too was a strategic move that mm -hmm. they weren't going to make reference to this failed case. Right. Right. And they were going yeah. to push that aspect of it that they had, which Tomekichi Homo didn't. He did have quite good English for an Issei. Um, and I think, from the sounds of it, I think he was better at reading and writing. Mm. He was, you know, a scholar. But I think he, he was, you know, one of the people in the community who had better English, but he wasn't the kind of person who was going to stand up and talk to a bunch of politicians in Ontario and Quebec, and they're going to be impressed by his English. Right. Well, it would be an interesting contrast, because often the argument that was made was that they wouldn't assimilate, that right. these Asians are not of, of a British mind and so forth. So to have the, the Nisei coming and speaking articulately, mm -hmm. and I, I, I think that uh, Hayakawa quoted Burns, Robbie Burns or something. Yeah, uh, at, uh, at one, of the, the, one of the Scottish, Scottish yeah, anti-Asian anti yeah, right. MPs yeah. from BC. So that was really uh, interesting to... to <laughs> yeah, and the, the members of the committee were so impressed by this delegation. I mean, they speak English you know, perfectly without any accent, and some of the members from Quebec especially were so impressed at their English, which is a no-brainer to anyone who understands how the Nisei community was at that time and still is. But when you're in Ottawa and when you're in Quebec, you don't understand what the situation is. And they were right, that distance was a big thing. That's right. right, because the people in Ottawa really had no clue about the Japanese community, it mm -hmm. seems. 
Right, and they were getting their information from the members of Parliament from BC, some of whom were very, very, what's the word, very strong anti-Asian right. um, politicians. There were two in particular, and I don't know, if, I don't think I remember their names, but they were the ones who came in after the delegation made their eloquent case and said, look, you can't do this, they'll, you know, yellow peril, they'll take over the whole province, and then they'll take over the country, and that would just be, you know, the worst thing in the world because we're a British colony or all those things. So they came in again, and I think that shows that, again, it's the, the province of BC is where the provincial government and the provincial representatives of the federal government are the ones that were really fighting against the franchise and barring it because that's where the racism was strongest because that's where the Japanese Canadians were mostly focused. Mm -hmm. I guess it in indicates the atmosphere leading up to World War II that mm -hmm. I mean sometimes people say or imagine that it's just because of Pearl Harbor that all the things happened right. but but there's this whole long history yes. of, of the scenario that was taking place and that was a, mm -hmm. a good illustration of the response um, to these pleas for justice. Right and so eventually even though the special committee was very impressed by the delegation from BC from the JCCL the Japanese Canadian Citizens League which had been formed mainly to get the franchise, and they were impressed with how well they understood democracy and how assimilated Canadian they seemed. The MPs from BC, not Angus McInnes, but his opponent, who were very against it, and eventually that was the side that won out, and they decided not to change the franchise laws. Um, it just occurs to me that that the the JCCL, one of the words being Citizens League, yes. I guess the um, it always struck me as odd before, but now in this context, it seems to make more sense that they're trying to emphasize right. that they should have the rights of other citizens. Absolutely, and that's still uh, the case today with the Japanese Canadian Citizens Association that we have here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Citizens is still a very important word mm -hmm. in how they think of themselves as a political organization. Mm -hmm. So uh, we won't go into the, the issues of the evacuation at this point, but obviously the fact that they couldn't vote was not helping their case for them being rounded up no. after, after the war. They had, the politicians had no particular motivation to right. take their rights into consideration, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't, yeah, there was no, no one who was going to vote for them that they could tell for protecting the Japanese mm -hmm. community, but there were people who were going to vote for them for getting them out. Mm -hmm. Right, right. The politicians being that way. Mm -hmm. And in 1944, after some of them were starting to get moved into other provinces like Alberta, the federal government actually extended the disenfranchisement that had applied to them in BC to the provinces that they got moved to. So even though uh, there were people of Japanese descent living in Alberta from before 1938, and they actually would have had the provincial vote there. Oh, really? Um, the, the ones who came afterward uh, to work on the sugar beet farms were not allowed to vote. Right. So it, it was, and that was, that's how they argued, oh, it's not actually a racist thing. It's <laughs> because sorry. they were from BC. Yeah, yeah, there was but, something else weird going on there. But again, it's the same thing that happened in the 19th century when Japanese immigrants first came, is that first there was no restriction, and then once there was enough of them mm -hmm. for there to be racist sentiment, then there was a law saying they couldn't. But the only way they could say it was they just said, no, because you're in Asiatic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If there was just a couple of them, then they, they kind of technically were allowed to vote, and there wasn't a big enough group of them to make a special rule against mm -hmm, them voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whether it's worth the effort to discriminate. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so in, even though the war ended in 1945, these issues uh, lingered, and in 1948, though, the uh, Federal Dominion Elections Act, that was the one that was mentioned in 1920, mm -hmm. finally deleted the section on race. Mm -hmm. So it said that the uh, citizens who were disqualified from voting in federal elections, if they had been disqualified from voting in their home provinces, that, that section was taken out. So technically, they would be able to vote, except that in the, the provinces, they still weren't allowed to. So the, the, right. the Japanese were finally allowed to vote in the province in the following year, in 1949. Right. Because basically what happened is the federal changed law to allow them to vote, and then once they got the federal vote, the province of BC followed suit and said, well, now they have the federal vote. So it became kind of the opposite of what the original barrier had been where they couldn't get the federal vote because they didn't have the provincial vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when that announcement was made, uh, after considerable lobbying by the, the GCCL, uh, Tomokichi's son, Seiji Homa, was involved in, in this lobbying and mm -hmm. he was apparently there. And, and you were yeah. saying that your aunt's... Yeah, well that's my Auntie Barry's dad. So she said, yeah, that he was really involved at that time in the... I think, was it that time? It was the JCCA, I think. they changed. Oh, it they then. changed it by then? Okay. Uh, it still had the Japanese-Canadian citizens. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the president when they got the vote and he got to see basically the, the end of the fight that his father in a lot of ways started. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, he had passed away by that time. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of interesting how that legacy continues through even that one family. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I guess maybe it became a cognitively dissonant or something, but they were allowed to vote. But at that point, they still weren't allowed to be in BC. They were still weren't allowed to move back to the coast until well, the was, following month. So sh right. shortly it after that, it all came together. Time. Yeah, yeah, it was all coming together. And uh, the other factor that was playing into it was this whole issue of the ones who were going to be sent to Japan. And so around that time, there was there was all that issue. Mm -hmm. And the ones who had been sent to Japan had lost their citizenship. So right. there were these other negotiations about them getting yeah. their, their rights subsequently. Yeah, I was reading this one story about a World War One vet who went back, who went to Japan afterwards. I think he would have been an Issei. So he went back to Japan as part of the deportation after mm -hmm. World War Two. So he would have lost his citizenship. And he came back to Canada again as an older man and, you know, still at Issei who didn't have great English, but he tried to get his citizenship back. The judge said, oh, um, you can't have citizenship because your English isn't good enough. And his son just sort of pointed at his World War One veteran medal. Huh. <laughs> and that's how he got it back. I can't remember what, um, which veteran it was, but I thought that was a great story. Hmm. So, yeah, 1949, back to then. That was actually, Japanese Canadians were among the last groups of Canadians to get the vote because in 1947, the Citizenship Act was passed, which gave the vote to other Asian Canadians, so Chinese Canadians, South Asian Canadians. Um, if they were Canadian citizens, they were allowed to vote. But they kept that restriction on Japanese Canadians because at that time, they were still restricted in their movement. They were still not allowed to go back to the coast. And for some reason, that meant that they couldn't vote. <laughs> but when they decided they were going to lift the restrictions, that's when things sort of rolled into place and they got the federal franchise. So it's interesting to kind of figure out the context. It, it, so many things are going on at mm -hmm. once. So even though we 
look at the Japanese Canadian right to vote. It's embedded in all of these other larger issues. Right, and to do with, well. the, with wars, both World War One and World War Two, when actually many Nisei in, tried to sign up to fight in World War Two mm -hmm. for similar reasons, mm -hmm. and some of them just because they wanted to as Canadian citizens. And they weren't allowed to serve in the Canadian Army until 1945. But before then, there was an act passed called, I think, the Soldiers' Vote Act, which actually probably did other things. But one of the things it did was explicitly said that any Canadians of Japanese descent who served with the Canadian military would not get the vote, even mm. if they served. Mm. So there's all these things that, like, they're trying to basically manufacture contradictions mm -hmm. to keep the Japanese Canadians from having the vote for so many years, and then finally they just let it go in 1949, 1948, 1949, and the rest is kind of history. Well, so except for the uh, 1982, finally, the, this actual right of all citizens to vote was embedded in the Charter of oh, Rights right. and, and Freedoms, so, right. so that... Yeah. Well, I guess ideally that means you can't you're have not the same thing happen again. Shenanigans, yeah. right? I mean, the the only group that was later than the Japanese Canadians was First Nations weren't able to vote until I think the '60s. Mm -hmm. Although they did get the federal franchise at the same time as the Japanese Canadians, I think because of that act that you mentioned. Right, and and well, or if anyone, provincial? yeah, they Something they've like had that. a they had one. They got another a little. Bit I'm later. sure that they have. A whole even more convoluted story of, oh, of the sure. issues that that we can't really speak to here, right. but I mean, certainly been something here longer, much longer than 1877. So they had to have a whole another round of contradictions introduced. That's right. It's it's yeah. interesting how it ties into the exhibit that's taking place right, right. now. Yes, yeah, so if you're hearing some background noise here, it's because we're um, right adjacent to the gallery here at the Nikkei National Museum where we have an exhibit called Revitalizing Japantown question mark about the different populations in the downtown east side that have been living there and then and there's been waves of displacement coming in, um, including the Japanese Canadians and now of course low income people, many of whom are Aboriginal and the original community of Coast Salish peoples are as well are a group that we talk about here. So there's lots of multimedia in that gallery and you should check out the exhibit if you can make it out to the museum before the end of January. Mm -hmm. The last thing I just wanted to comment on was a quote from this book, The History of the Vote in Canada, uh, by Jean-Pierre Kingsley, the Chief Electoral Officer of Canada. He said that, in a democratic society, the power and importance of a single vote must never be underestimated, for the guarantees that protect one elector protect us all. Mm-hmm. For sure. So did you vote in the last election, Raymond? I won't yes. ask you who you voted for. That's right. Yes, I did. My, because my mother would say she didn't always have the right, so you right. can't take it for granted. Definitely. I know when I was talking to my aunt, she said that one of her sons-in-law was joking about not voting, and, oh, no, you, you don't joke about that, not in the Homa family <laughs> or in the Nakagawa family. That's something that's really important to remember, I think. it's It's, it's been, you know, many decades now, but... It's still within living memory for some people mm -hmm. that that was something that they fought for and couldn't get, couldn't get, couldn't get, and now we have it. So, next time, go out and vote if you didn't. Yes. Provincial election, municipal election, federal election. Exercise your right as a Canadian citizen. Great.